You're listening to a news report podcast from TheBody.com, the Internet's most comprehensive HIV-AIDS resource. Welcome to Breaking News from The Body. My name is Bonnie Goldman, and I'm Editorial Director of The Body. On January 18th, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the first new NNRTI in nearly a decade. It was known throughout much of its development as TMC-125 and is now known by its generic name, Etravirine, and brand name of Intellens. Etravirine's approval follows on the heels of approvals of three other new antiretrovirals, making this really an unprecedented time in the history of HIV-AIDS medicine. To learn more about etravirine and its potential impact on the treatment of HIV-infected patients, I spoke by phone with Dr. Cal Cohn, Research Director of Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates and Community Research Initiative of New England in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Cohn has participated in research on this drug and has also received funding from the makers of this drug. Dr. Cohn, can you talk us through the kind of patient etravirine is meant for and how you think it will be used? Etravirine was studied in treatment experienced adult patients, and so that's where we have our information, and that, that's therefore really the focus of the use of this drug. It's people who have a history of using multiple classes of drugs who, despite that, are now dealing with a breakthrough viremia and a history of resistance and now need to construct a new regimen, and that's the group for whom etravirine is going to be an important drug. And what are the more uh, notable adverse effects? There were a few adverse events that were picked up in the studies. Probably the first to note is that there are some people who, with non-nucleosides in general, and this one included, will have a rash. And uh, overall, the incidence of rash was around 10% or so on etravirine. A small number of people did have a, a severe rash, the kinds of rashes that we call Stevens-Johnson and other kinds of descriptions. Uh, thankfully, severe rash is quite rare. Uh, and very few people had to stop this drug uh, due to rash. But nevertheless, that's certainly one of the more common and important side effects for clinicians to be aware of. The typical non-nuke rash occurs in week two and fades in most patients as we stay on treatment, and that's, again, true for etravirine. The only other side effect in terms of how people felt uh, was a few percent of people did note some nausea, and otherwise there really wasn't too much else that was picked up in terms of uh, the kinds of side effects we talk about In terms of lab tests, uh, the drug also looked pretty clean. There really were only a few percent of patients who differed from placebo on a number of lab tests. Uh, Could you summarize the the DUET study? That was the approval study. The DUET studies were randomized trials, very large trials that were done, two of them done essentially the same design, triple-class experienced patients who were viremic despite prior regimens were randomized to receive a new regimen either with or without etravirine. The regimen that they were given always included darunavir, one of the newer protease inhibitors, and then the rest of the regimen was left to the discretion of the local investigator, although they certainly could not have any other non-nucleoside in that regimen. And the only randomization then was how much difference did etravirine make to that background regimen. In the DUET data, what we have are week 24 data. At this point, this study is, in fact, still ongoing. But the data clearly demonstrate the importance of etravirine uh, to an optimized background regimen, even one containing darunavir. On average, there was about a 50% increase in the response rate meaning that if the average uh, response rate of patients getting to less than 50 was about 40% of those enrolled with etravirine, we're up to about 
Equally important is to understand how much difference the optimized background could make. In fact, when we looked at a truly optimized background, one containing darunavir and etravirine and infuritide, so in other words, three reasonably active drugs, particularly in the subset when uh, etravirine was active by resistance testing, then over 80% of patients achieved a viral load less than 50 copies, which is a clear illustration of how this drug in combination will increase the odds of virologic suppression. How does that compare with other new drugs recently approved for this population? Well, it's, of course, hard to compare across trials because patients are different. There are different enrollments. There are different amount of baseline resistance. But it's fair to say that this is similar to the kinds of advances we make when we add a new drug, that we see a clear illustration of an increased rate of uh, virologic suppression. And the more the regimen is active, the larger number of people can uh, get to less than 50. And that's what we see here one more time. I understand that etravirine has only been studied with one protease inhibitor, darunavir, and so we have limited data about its use with other protease inhibitors? Well, we have some pharmacokinetic interaction data with other protease inhibitors, but you're absolutely right. The duet studies were with, in combination with darunavir, so that's where we have the vast majority of our data. Uh, however, we do have some cautions around not using this with a couple of other protease inhibitors due to some drug interactions. Uh, for example, topranavir dramatically decreases the levels of etrovirine. Uh, and there are some other drug interactions like adizanavir in which you actually double your exposure to the etrovirine in the presence of adizanavir. So because it's reasonably complicated, clinicians who are going to use this drug should be comfortable with the package insert and the pharmacokinetic data. But the, the short answer is that Right now, we have the most data with uh, of etravirine and darunavir, and that's certainly a solid combination for the kinds of patients in whom this drug is useful for. Are, are there any other notable drug-drug interactions? I, I guess I'm thinking about statins, hormonal contraceptives, methadone, antidepressants. All important drugs, and again, instead of uh, going through an entire list and, and having listeners tr try to memorize it, uh, all of this is captured in the package insert. Uh, there are a couple of things just notable, which is that, for example, with a drug like atorvastatin, there isn't too much of a problem. So there are some uh, commonly used drugs like methadone, for example, in which we don't expect any important drug-drug interactions, oral contraceptives, we don't expect any important drug-drug interactions. Uh, some of the tuberculosis drugs and seizure drugs are commonly a problem for many of the non-nucleosides, and that's, again, true here. Uh, but there's a, the list in, in the table in the package insert is actually pretty clear and goes through which drugs to be careful with. Is it known how many mutations and which mutations will cause etrovirine to fail? There's actually a fair bit of analysis to help clinicians and guide us. And, and as the company has presented for years and the FDA agreed, the, fortunately, the K103N mutation, the signature mutation that arises on efavirenz or Sestiva, does not impact the activity of etrovirine. Uh, so that's one piece of reassuring news. Uh, but to make it simple, they certainly have a list of NNRTI mutations that are relevant to all NNRTIs. And probably the simplest thing to take as a take-home is the more NNRTI mutations there were, the less the activity was of etrovirine, 
given the overall list, with again, with the exclusion of K103N, as I just mentioned earlier. And so it's uh, fair to say that this drug will be very active for people with a few mutations and certainly compromised for people with a lot of NNRTI mutations. Are there any uh, looming questions about etorivimib that you would like to see addressed in the near future? I know, for instance, that only 10% of the study participants were women. Is that a problem or a well, it certainly suggests we have limited experience in women, and you're absolutely right, although it's fair to point out that there were 600 people in the studies, and so 10% of that uh, gives us at least some information to start with. In addition, there were a few thousand people in the expanded access protocols, and so hopefully over time we'll get additional information about different types of populations. One group for whom we haven't mentioned but might be one piece that's helpful for clinicians and patients is that this drug is not renally cleared. So people who have compromised renal function don't need to worry about dose adjusting atrovirine. This drug is hepatically cleared. And so there's no worry about the people's serum creatinine or their creatinine clearance. So I noticed in the approval from the FDA that atrovirine has to be taken with a meal. And if it's not taken with at least 350 calories, its levels can fall a dramatic 50%. Can you talk about this and other cautions with this drug? Sure. There are a number of drugs that have uh, food effects in which food is important to take with these drugs. And so this drug is in that category in, in which uh, it does require some food. The good news is that it doesn't really matter what type of food. They studied a range of meals. And uh, as you point out, with as little as 350 calories, although much larger meals were also studied, uh, the drug was well absorbed over that cross of meals. So the only real caution is just to not take this drug on an empty stomach. Other than that, however, there's no particular cautions about how to take it. It's taken uh, twice a day. It doesn't have to necessarily be precisely every 12 hours. Uh, it actually has a reasonable half-life, so it's got that nice cushion. And other than the meal effect, there really isn't much else in terms of taking the drug. Otherwise, it's pretty standard. What, what sort of half-life does it have? Uh, the half-life that's reported in the label was actually listed at 41 hours, although there's quite a range uh, with uh, plus or minus 20 hours. But overall, what that suggests is that uh, the vast majority of people will have a long exposure to this drug after each dose. Uh -huh. I noticed that the pills seem to dissolve pretty quickly, and, and they should be swallowed pretty quickly because of that? That certainly makes sense, although certainly in the studies, I have not heard any descriptions of any cautions of people who had trouble swallowing the tablets. But you're right. One of the things that uh, Tebotech did was to figure out what, what, what was the advice for people who couldn't swallow the tablets. And so what they're instructed to do is just put it in a glass of water, create a slurry, and just drink it. And then, of course, make sure that any, any little tablets that are in the glass that you get that too by taking a couple extra rinses. Uh, but other than that, there haven't really been any cautions around swallowing it quickly or d dissolving in the mouth, although it certainly makes sense to think about that. We haven't heard about that much in the studies, however. I understand that Tebotech has worked closely with the HIV activist community on pricing and other issues, and the pricing of atravirine is lower than that of more recently approved drugs for rescue therapy by several dollars a day. Can you comment? Is that an issue for patients in general, the pricing of the drugs in the well, United States? I, I have not heard the uh, actual price, and I do know that certainly there are many ways in which the price can be, again, altered depending on what deals different insurance companies make. But I guess overall, I, I would say that it's good news that the drug was less than other uh, recently approved drugs and certainly increases the likelihood of making sure we'll, we'll get access to this in, in a broad range of insurances. Needless to say, ultimately it comes down to making sure that every insurance company, including the public assistance programs, make this drug available to people. And I think there's very little controversy that the drug at this price is an important contribution to the field. With the approval of four new enterotrials in two years, all geared for treatment experienced patients, do you think 
HIV specialists feel confident about building a regimen with so many new agents? Well, certainly there are a couple of key pieces that are needed to construct new regimens. And the first, as you mentioned, is new drugs that are active against these viruses. And so now we have an extraordinary repertoire of drugs just approved in the past year, uh, something that we really haven't had uh, in the history of our field. To have several new classes and several new drugs in existing classes is a new opportunity. However, it's also fair to say that we haven't studied every combination of all of these drugs. So clinicians will frequently uh, be wondering, what is the best combination? Is it three drugs or should I give a fourth? Uh, which is the best combination? Needless to say, there are going to be a lot of questions and some answers. Uh, we have some information to guide us. Uh, so clinicians would certainly look to each other. There are lots of ways in which clinicians can stay educated. There are lots of ways for patients to stay apprised. Uh, we are still learning, however, of the best way to make sure that these drugs lead to a good response. So I guess look forward to more conferences and more presentations. Yeah, there are certainly some basic principles, no doubt. The more active drugs you have, the more likely you're going to get that viral load under control. That's the easy part. The more subtle parts is where we're going to need more guidance. What would we do with etrovirine? if there's one or two mutations and the PI is a little compromised and do I need etrovirine and should I add marafuroc or are three drugs enough and all of those kinds of questions. Do I add nucleosides? Should it be six drugs? There are always going to be these kinds of questions uh, and certainly that's why research is still going to be needed in our field for certainly years to come. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Cohn, for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks very much. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice should not be considered substitutes for professional services and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been a news report podcast from thebody.com. Be sure to check in at thebody.com frequently for the latest news and information on HIV, including in-depth interviews with HIV-positive people, researchers, and healthcare professionals.